Before 2015, the Countess of Chester's neonatal unit was like any other in England. A team of about 30 nurses and 7 pediatric consultants provided 24-hour care for hundreds of premature babies each year. Some born as many as 12 weeks early, weighing as little as 1 pound. The prospects for each extremely premature babies are good with the right level of care, despite being born in what doctors call the margins of viability. Studies show that for every 1,000 premature babies born in the UK each year, fewer than two die. Of the hundreds of babies that pass through the Countess of Chester Hospital's neonatal unit in an average year, only between one and three would die until 2015. On June 7, 2015, a set of twins were born six weeks premature at Countess of Chester Hospital. The mother delivered them by cesarean section around 8.30 p.m. because her blood pressure became dangerously high due to preeclampsia. The twins, one boy and one girl, needed some assistance as they were premature, but they were healthy. They were expected to live. Doctors considered the girl to be in worse condition of the twins, and although both needed help with their breathing, the baby boy was soon able to breathe for himself and was considered stable during his first day of life. The babies were moved to the neonatal unit that evening. The baby boy was well, but the following evening, he suddenly collapsed. The sudden news came as a shock for all of those who cared for him during the day. No one expected such a tragedy to unfold. However, things like this can happen. The next morning, the baby girl suddenly collapsed in the same exact manner. Fortunately, she was successfully resuscitated. This incident was only the start of an abnormally high death rate of infants at Countess of Chester Hospital between June 2015 and June 2016. Were these babies dying of natural causes, or was someone causing their untimely demise? Welcome to another episode of Crimson Sin with Tamsin Lee. I am your host, Tamsin Lee. Full show notes and sources can be found at tamsinleecrimsonsin.podbean.com. In today's case, I'm going to say that the person in question is said to have allegedly committed these acts. While she has been convicted of these crimes and is found guilty, I'm not going to use definitives because she claims she's not guilty of the crimes in question, which, yes, I know many people who get in trouble claim that they're innocent, that they're not guilty, but as I said, I'm just going to say allegedly in so forth because there are people out there that believe that she is innocent. I'm going to refrain from using definitives. I will provide the facts I have found and my listeners can come to their own conclusions about how they feel what was found. So if you feel that she's guilty or innocent, that is your right to feel that way. <laughs> also, the victims in the family's names are redacted, meaning they remained anonymous. As the victims are babies, I completely understand this. They're minors, so their names will not be released. But they also wanted the parents to stay anonymous because it is hard enough to come to terms with your infant's sudden death. So adding media coverage would become excruciating. So protecting their privacy is very important. So the children's names... I'll read them as child A, child B, or baby A, or baby B, and so forth, but 
That's also how they identified them in the court documents. So today we are talking about the case of what is said to be one of the UK's most prolific serial child killers in modern times, Lucy Letby. This case is new, with her sentencing occurring on August 21st, 2023. So let's dive into the story of Lucy Letby. Lucy Letby was born on January 4th, 1990, and she was the only child of John and Susan Letby, who were a finance manager and an accounts clerk. She grew up in Hereford, where she attended a local school, Aylstone School, before attending Hereford Sixth Form College, selecting subjects that she believed would help her achieve her goals and aspirations. A friend who had known her since secondary school stated that Lucy had a very difficult birth and was very grateful for being alive to the nurses who would have helped save her life. This, the friend state, had led her to want to be a nurse all her life and that everything she did was geared towards that ultimate goal of becoming a nurse. Another friend described her as quite awkward and geeky. Letby, the first person in her family to attend college, pursued her education in nursing at the University of Chester, where she also worked as a student nurse during her three years of training, carrying out placements at Liverpool Women's Hospital and the Countess of Chester Hospital. Letby was the first member of her family to study at university and graduated in September 2011. During her studies, she completed numerous work placements. The majority were based at the Countess of Chester Hospital, either in the children's ward or the neonatal unit. Letby qualified as a Band 5 nurse in September 2011 and went on to start working full-time at the hospital in January 2012. By the spring of 2015, she was qualified to work intensive care babies. She stated that her workload at the time was predominantly spent looking after the sickest babies on the unit. During this time, she stated to have mentored five or six student nurses and estimated that she cared for hundreds of newborn babies during 2015 and 2016. At the beginning of this episode, I discussed the tragic tale of Child A and Child B. Child A was the twin boy who showed he was stable and recovering better than his sister, Child B. Child A weighed only 3 pounds 12 ounces and was cared for by Dr. Sally Ogden when he and his sister were transferred to the neonatal unit. On June 8, 2015, at 8.30 p.m., Dr. Ogden completed her shift and left her duties for caring for the babies to Lucy Letby and nurse Melanie Taylor. He was breathing on his own and was expressly given breast milk. An hour after starting her shift, Letby called a doctor to the baby's incubator and the on-call consultant was also alerted. Both doctors and consultant noted an odd discoloration on the boy's skin, patches of pink over blue skin that appeared and disappeared. Taylor said child A was in receipt of respiratory support condition and was stable, but did not have intravenous fluids for a couple of hours. The courts heard there were several hiccups as a cannula, which is a thin tube inserted into a vein or body cavity to administer medicine, drain off fluid, or insert 
a surgical instrument. There were several hiccups as the cannula to a blood vessel stopped working, which was then followed by two attempts to insert a catheter in the correct position. A long line plastic tube was eventually fitted and fluids were given at 8.05 p.m. Co-signed by Taylor and Letby for the glucose infusion, and she was writing up her notes for the day at a computer when she realized baby A was deteriorating. Taylor stated that she had a clear line into the nursery where baby A and B were. He started to deteriorate. His heart rate dropped and his saturations dropped. And Lucy Letby was standing by the incubator. She said, I initially stayed by the computer because he was fairly stable and Lucy was there. When I realized he wasn't recovering from the deterioration, I got up to help Lucy. She also explained that it was not uncommon for babies in the unit to deteriorate and then quickly improve. So for a short time, she thought baby A was recovering. Taylor said she wasn't certain but thought it was after the glucose infusion had begun that she sat down at the computer to complete her notes. When she got to baby A, Letby was giving him some breaths by a Neopuff, which is a face mask used to aid neonatal resuscitation. She described the attempts to save baby A as a bit of a blur. She said, I know that it was lengthy and carried on, but I kept thinking he was going to recover, and he didn't. Dr. Ogden stated baby A showed no signs of any problems throughout the day. He was handling well. She said, I had no concerns at all for him or his twin sister. When she returned for her shift the next morning, she stated that she received a handover from Dr. Rachel Lambie, informing her and her team that baby A had died during the evening before, just 90 minutes after Dr. Ogden clocked out of work. She continued, I remember this came as a big surprise. It was completely out of the blue and very upsetting. A pathologist concluded that that air in child A's circulation was most likely caused by air administration through one of two tubes already attached to the baby's body. After baby A died, it was stated by the parents that they feared for baby B. A family member stayed by the surviving baby's side while in neonatal care. Child B was said to have required some resuscitation at birth on June 7th, but recovered quickly and stabilized. Shortly before midnight, it was noted her blood oxygen level had fallen and that nasal prongs had been dislodged. At about 12.30 a.m. on June 9th, she was blue, not breathing, and limp. An on-call registrar was alerted and the child recovered quickly once she was resuscitated. Allegedly, Letby injected child B with air roughly 28 hours after doing this to the newborn's twin brother. She survives after being resuscitated. Subsequent tests showed loops of gas-filled bowel, which is a finding later replicated in several babies over the following year. In my research, I found that in young children, gas-filled small bowel loops are common, normal findings. However, distension of these loops by gas or fluid should be regarded as abnormal. Luckily, child B does not appear to have suffered any adverse consequences from this heinous act. 
On June 14th, 2015, baby C was only five days old when he unexpectedly passed away. A seven-week premature baby weighing only one pound, 12 ounces, was in intensive care but in good condition until he suddenly collapsed. It was stated that Let B was looking after another baby but was the only person in the room when he suddenly collapsed. He showed intermittent signs of life for five hours after a medical crash team called off their desperate attempts to resuscitate him. Medical staff had initially gone twice over the normal 20-minute threshold recommended for resuscitation to continue once a baby has failed to respond. Which can you blame them? Saving a baby is important for many people because they are so innocent. They haven't, they haven't experienced life yet. And when it comes to newborn babies, it's not just about the baby. You want to resuscitate them because it's about their family too. I mean, they came there, had the baby, and to just walk off empty-handed is it's just devastating. It is stated that both baby C's heart and breathing restarted faintly while he was being cuddled by his parents in a family room at the Countess of Chester Hospital. They continued to carry out token resuscitation for another hour to allow time for the infant to be baptized by both a Catholic priest and a Church of England vicar. During this time, it was claimed by a senior nurse on duty that day. She had to repeatedly tell Let Be to come out of the room that Baby C's parents were spending their last moments with their son after she'd been involved in failed attempts to revive him. She stated that she wanted Let Be to concentrate on another baby in the unit, but she kept going in the room with the family. Nurse Taylor was instructed to offer the family a memory box, which included a hand and footprints and a lock of hair. However, this was only partly done by Taylor because Let Be kept going into the room and decided to carry out the rest of the process even though she was not instructed to do so. Dr. Gibbs, a consultant pediatrician working at Countess of Chester Hospital for over 20 years, stated, Surprisingly, while we were waiting for the two ministers, there were some signs of life. I hadn't been expecting that. I was not sure initially what to do because we had stopped full resuscitation. We were only performing a token resuscitation to allow him to be christened. I'm not sure why his breathing, occasional gasps, and his heartbeats restarted. It was five hours later when finally no heartbeat was heard and there were no further gasping responses. After his shift ended and leaving the hospital, he was at home when he received numerous phone calls from a colleague stating, she called me, I can't remember how many times, but to say, baby C is still showing breathing effort. I can't think of any natural disease process that would allow the heart to restart later on when you've not been able to restart it with resuscitation. That suggests that whatever catastrophic event caused his death was reversing. I don't understand from a natural disease process. Gibbs said that when staff became aware of the intermittent signs of life returning to the infant, they gave him palliative care. They realized that by then, he had suffered profound brain damage. He said, it's very difficult to know what a 30-weeker feels. We don't know if he was feeling distressed, but we knew he had no nutrition, and by then, he would be dehydrated. 
It was therefore appropriate to give him morphine to relieve any distress. The father of Baby C said that a nurse he thought may have been let be came in with a ventilated basket, allegedly telling the couple, you said your goodbyes, do you want me to put him in here? This comment shocked us, he recalled in a written statement. My wife said, he's not dead yet. The nurse backed off and tried to defuse the situation, but I couldn't believe she'd said that. Child C died because the air injected into his stomach through a nose tube made him unable to breathe, and he suffered a cardiac arrest. It was revealed that Letby had sent messages to Jennifer Jones Key saying, Sorry if I was off. Just wasn't a great start to the shift, but sadly, it got worse. She went on to say, I was struggling to accept what happened to child A. Now we've lost child C overnight, and it's all a bit much. She described the death as so sad and cruel, and told Jones Key, I just keep seeing them both. No one should have to see and do the things we do. It's heartbreaking. She also added, It's not about me or anyone else. It's those poor parents who have to walk away without their baby. It's so unbelievably sad. Letby also messaged her mother, Susan, that morning and said, We lost a little one overnight. Very unexpected and sad. She told her mother the baby weighed only 800 grams and was being looked after by a new girl, Sophie Ellis, who was devastated. Susan Letby replied, We are so proud of you. Love you. So after this event... Baby D was born at 4.01 p.m. on June 20th, 2015 and weighed 6 pounds 14 ounces and required breathing support at birth. She was sent to the neonatal unit at roughly 7.30 p.m. because she was grunting and her skin color was dusky. Staff inserted an endotracheal tube at the second attempt. A short time later noticed that the infant was starting to put a few breaths in for herself. Later, a note said that the father of Baby D appeared visibly upset when told that his daughter would remain in the unit for at least 48 hours, and he was given a lot of reassurance. At 4.30 a.m. on June 21st, the nursing notes reported good respiratory effort and good blood gas readings. Staff reduced ventilation support. By 9 a.m., the infant's blood gas remained satisfactory. However, at 10.15 a.m., nurse Kate Bissell reported that a new blood gas reading showed signs of respiratory acidosis. As a result, Baby D was put back on CPAP. Two hours later, staff noted a further deterioration with increasing metabolic acidosis. The infant's perfusion was poor and a doctor approved a decision to give her medication. The mother said she had previously seen Let Be the night before when she walked into a room on the neonatal unit to see her daughter for only the second time since her birth by emergency c-section on June 20th. As I pushed in, she, speaking of Let Be, was sort of hovering around D but not doing much. She had a clipboard to take notes. She was looking at the machines. I didn't know what she was doing. I asked if everything was okay. She said, yes, fine. I would have expected she could have just left us to it. It was the first time I'd seen Dee since her birth. She just stuck around. 
I asked my husband to ask her to go away to give us some privacy. It was around 4 a.m. that they were awoken and told to rush to the neonatal unit. In a statement, Child D's father said she was on the neonatal ward for 36 hours and had equipment to help her breathe. In a written statement, Baby D's father said that as soon as he and his wife reached the neonatal unit, he realized it was a very serious situation. The father said that before his daughter's fatal collapse, staff had never given the impression that her condition was life-threatening. It didn't even cross my mind that she was in danger of dying. As far as I was led to believe, babies get infections all the time. When she died, we were just not prepared for it. Nothing that I saw appeared out of the ordinary, but I didn't have anything to compare these actions to. Child D died of an IV embolism that resulted in her collapsing three times in the early hours of June 22nd, 2015. Those attending noted a discoloration of the baby's skin. It was also revealed that Let B had searched for Child D's parents on Facebook not long after this incident. By this point, many of the staff started to become very suspicious of the sudden and unexpected deaths that occurred in June. There were three deaths, which all babies were expected to live, and another nearly died. Four victims in one month is highly suspicious. And I state that it is highly suspicious because from the deciding factor of air being injected into the bloodstream or stomach, this is not a common way to die. And on top of that, it is suspicious to begin with because even though these babies were premature and probably had a low viability rate, this hospital deals with premature babies all the time. So on average, as I stated at the beginning, on average, this hospital has maybe one or three infant deaths. Now there's three in one month. That, that is just suspicious. I mean, it could happen, but still. Kind of suspicious. So on July 2nd, 2015, Dr. Stefan Breary, who is the head consultant on the neonatal unit, started to carry out a review of the unusual deaths that occurred during June. The director of nursing and deputy chief executive was told that Letby was the only nurse on shift for each of the three deaths. The common denominator, if you will. She worked long shifts on June 2nd, 4th, 17th, 19th, 27th, and 28th, and night shifts on June 8th, 9th, 13th, 14th, 21st, and 23rd. Baby A died on the night of June 8th and 9th, that's when she had her night shift on the 8th and 9th, while his twin sister, Baby B, suffered a non-fatal collapse on June 9th and 10th, which she was on night shifts on June 9th. Baby C died on the night of June 13th to 14th, which she was there for the night shifts on those days. And Baby D died on the night of June 21st to 22nd. Again, she was on night shifts on June 21st. So, again, she was the common denominator because on some of those days, she was the only nurse who was assigned to those babies. All of this is alleged. It's speculated. I'm giving you the information I found. You make your own decisions on what you believe happened. <laughs> but so far from that data, it is kind of suspicious, right? 
So, from these findings, even though Dr. Breary showed that he was highly suspicious because it was unusual deaths, Letby remained on the neonatal unit. Of course, they probably believed that this to be coincidence, which I would not want to immediately rule out that, okay, this is a coincidence. But as for my opinion, as it is dealing with infants, I would think that some investigation should have been carried out. Even if the investigation didn't come to anything, that there were no promising results, as a parent and as a human being, I think they should have investigated for the abnormal deaths. I mean, do you think they should have investigated? Not specifically only looking at let be, you know, looking at just looking at everything, maybe someone should have investigated, right? Child E and Child F were twins who were born seven weeks premature. It is said that Child E's mother walked in on Letby trying to murder the newborn after arriving to the unit with his milk. The mother stated that when she arrived, he appeared to be distressed and bleeding from the mouth. She continued that Letby tried to reassure her and stated that the registrar would review the baby's condition while demanding that she should leave the unit. Child E went on to suffer significant blood loss later in the evening which is believed to be the result of Letby interfering with his neogastric tube and an IV embolism. Child E lost at least a quarter of his total blood volume, which showed trauma. Following the death of Child E in the early hours of August 4th, it was stated that Letby made fraudulent nursing notes, which were false, misleading, and designed to cover her tracks. It was also reported that Letby repeatedly searched for the family on social media after his death. The day after allegedly murdering Child E, it is speculated that Lucy Letby used insulin for the first time to poison a baby by trying to murder Child E's twin brother, Child F. In less than 24 hours after Child E's death, Child F's feeding bag was laced with insulin. A blood sample later confirmed this, as he had extremely high insulin levels and very low C-peptide levels. This was proof that he had been injected with insulin. Luckily, he survived. Child G is the most premature baby in the case as she was born 15 weeks early and weighed just over one pound. September 6th, 2015 was a significant date for the baby as she made it to her 100th day alive. However, in the early hours of September 7th, it was found that she was fed an excessive amount of milk through a neogastric tube and quite possibly injected with air. Child G vomited out of her cot and onto a nearby chair and the floor. She had suffered a collapse and was not breathing. She was moved back to Arrow Park Hospital where she was born and quickly recovered before she returned to the Countess of Chester on September 16th. Child G had two projectile vomits and stopped breathing briefly on September 21st after she was earlier fed milk via a nasogastric tube, allegedly by Lucy Letby. She projectile vomited again and her heart rate and oxygen levels dropped to unusually 
low levels. The doctor said that he could not find a natural cause for the drastic vomiting, so an expert witness doctor concluded that the only viable explanation for the baby vomiting so extraordinarily was if it had received far more milk than was allocated down her feeding tube and that this could not have been an accident. You cannot accidentally overfeed a baby by this amount. So this is the time where Letby is actually suspected of harming baby G while feeding her at around 10 a.m. So a colleague had noticed that child G's initial collapse occurred on the exact day she was originally due to be born. In the mid-afternoon, a nurse also responded to Letby's shout for help and noticed the monitor had been switched off while the child was struggling to breathe. Child G is thankfully alive today. She's about eight years old, but unfortunately she was left severely disabled as a result of the first two episodes. After Child G is Child H. Letby is said to have attacked Baby H twice on two successive night shifts in September 2015. The child suffered two profound collapses and required resuscitation with the use of adrenaline. No clear cause for either incident was identified at the time. It is said that when the attacks occurred, the father had left her side not too long before. Baby H was transferred to a different hospital where she made a full recovery. Child I was born at 10 weeks premature and weighed only 2 pounds. It was reported that the baby was stable and didn't require any specialized care. So roughly 6 weeks after Child G's multiple collapses, Child I died on October 23, 2015. Child I collapsed and required chest compressions in the early hours of October 23, 2015, but was successfully resuscitated and recovered to the extent that she was showing signs of hunger. By the fourth time the baby girl had collapsed, attempts to resuscitate her were unsuccessful. It was stated that Letby was found next to her incubator by another nurse. An expert pediatrician who reviewed Child I's case had concluded the baby's deteriorations were consistent with the deliberate administration of a large amount of air into her stomach via a nasogastric tube. The baby was found to have excessive air in her stomach twice, which had affected her breathing. Before the second collapse, Letby had suspiciously said to a colleague that child eye looked pale, even though it would have been hard to see from where they were standing in a doorway looking into the darkened nursery. Upon hearing this, the designated nurse for the child turned the light on to see that the girl was not breathing. The child's mother later said Letby smiled as she bathed her dead daughter and offered to take a photo of the dead child. The doctor had stated that he had seen unusual skin mottling on child eye skin and x-rays showed the child had a massively enlarged stomach that was consistent with her having been deliberately injected with air. Let me also later search for Child Eye's mother on Facebook. Following the death of Child Eye, Dr. Breary became increasingly concerned. Looking into the staffing review, he finds that Letby was present at all of the unusual deaths. Another consultant, Dr. Ravi, alerted management about their concerns and findings, but were told not to make a fuss. Baby J was born prematurely also. 
at just 32 weeks and two days. Child J appeared to be well at first, but then problems with her bowel became apparent and she was moved to Alder Hay Children's Hospital in Liverpool for emergency surgery. She had a condition called necrotizing enterocolitis, where a portion of the bowel becomes inflamed as well as a perforated bowel. Baby J needed two stomas, where part of the bowel is left outside the body to allow it to rest after surgery. After 10 days, she was taken back to the Countess of Chester's neonatal unit. The mother recounted how the staff at Alder Hay Children's Hospital were more responsive and remained in contact with the family. Then at Countess of Chester, she even stated that she walked in on her daughter wrapped in a towel covered in feces and had to prompt the staff about the baby's medication. After four weeks at the hospital, the parents were preparing to bring child Jay home when they received a call that their baby had collapsed. Child Jay's mother said when they arrived at the hospital, they found the girl in an incubator and she looked very floppy pale and yellow in color, and was not very responsive. After care from nurses, the baby recovered quickly, but the cause of her collapse was not known at that stage. She suffered an unexplained collapse overnight on November 26th, 27th, when Lucy Leppi was one of the six nurses working the night shift. Child J suffered two serious problems with her breathing in the night and was moved to a high-dependency room. At 6.56 a.m. on the 27th, her oxygen level dropped so low, it was so low that they couldn't record it, and she went into seizure. At 7.20 a.m., Letby gave the baby a glucose infusion. Then minutes later, Child J collapsed again with a seizure and had to be resuscitated with the help of a doctor. An independent medical expert who reviewed Child J's case said it was of concern and consistent with some form of obstruction of her airways, such as smothering. Again, after this, Letby searched for the child's family on Facebook the next month. On February 8th, 2016, a review ordered by Breary found several links in nine unusual deaths since June 2015. Letby's name was mentioned during a meeting called to discuss the report and sent to the medical doctor, Ian Harvey. Breary requests an urgent meeting with executives <clears throat> but no meeting takes place until May 2016. Child K was a baby no older than 98 minutes when Letby was found in her room by her colleague, Dr. Ravi, a pediatric consultant. The doctor was said to have been uncomfortable finding Letby in the room with a 12-week premature baby because he had started making a connection between the mysterious deaths. Dr. Ravi stated that Letby was standing over the incubator of the newborn girl when her oxygen levels had fallen dangerously low. The doctor rushed to help the baby to find that her chest was not moving and her breathing tube had allegedly been dislodged. It was reported that Letby did not make any effort to help, nor did she call for assistance while an alarm connected to the infant appeared to have been silenced. Later that same morning at 7.30, Lucy Letby was again at Child K's cot calling for help. She was assisting the baby with her breathing and it was found Child K's breathing tube had this time slipped too far into her throat. 
Child K was transferred to another hospital later that day, but remained unwell and died two days later. However, Lackby is not accused of Child K's death. By April 2016, Letby was moved to the day shift because people were very suspicious about her at this point. And just as she was switched to the day shift, the unexpected time of infant deaths changed to the daytime also. Such was the case for Child L and Child M, who are twins. On April 9th, 2016, two twin brothers suffered sudden collapses within hours of each other. Tests would find that child L inexplicably had insulin levels in his blood at the very top of the scale that the equipment was capable of measuring. So this means that their blood machine that levels the, that shows the insulin levels hit the top mark. And it was as far as it could count up, and there was probably more in it. So hours later, twin brother Child M's heart rate and breathing suddenly dropped, and he nearly died. Experts say that Child M's heart was likely caused by air being injected into his bloodstream. Although he lived, the child now suffers from brain damage. It is noted that the collapses of child L and M occurred in almost identical circumstances to child E and F. Both were twins, where one was believed to have been injected with insulin and the other with air. Child F had survived his injection of insulin, and it is noted that child L had been injected with twice the dose of insulin. The suggestion of this being that allegedly Letby had done so to ensure death on this occasion. Child M was close to death when his breathing and heart rate dropped dramatically. However, he improved during the night shift and went on to make a speedy recovery. So the alarm was raised again on May 11th, 2016, when Brearley meets with Harvey and Kelly to raise concerns about Letby after an assurance document set out by why Letby was not believed to be the cause of the unusual deaths. This was the urgent meeting he requested back in February. Just a personal thought, I guess urgent takes three months when it deals with premature babies. I guess. That's my personal thought. So anyway, it suggests other NH services may be to blame for the spike in deaths and that there is no evidence whatsoever against Letby other than coincidence. Rarely feels his concerns have been dismissed. Again, of course, these horrible things happen, but these are not common ways of dying. These are not natural causes of death. So yes, of course, of course, it could be a coincidence that Letby was there on these days, but the theory remains that it only happens when she's there. It hadn't happened when she wasn't there, so there's no way it only happens when she's there. There's only so many times that it can be considered a coincidence before someone can be like, okay, no, there's something actually really going on here. Child N was born at 34 weeks in June 2016. His clinical condition was described as excellent, although he did have mild hemophilia, which is a blood disorder that causes severe bleeding. It is speculated that Letby used his condition to her advantage as a cover 
when she proceeded to attack him three times. At 1.05 a.m., the day-old baby suffered a sudden lowering of his blood oxygen levels to life-threatening levels. Twelve days later, on June 15th, Letby is alleged to have made two more attempts to murder Child N. Child N was almost ready to go home when Letby entered his room. When a second nurse had her back turned, Letby told her the baby had lost oxygen and immediately assisted with his breathing. A doctor was unable to put a breathing tube into the child after discovering fresh blood inside his mouth. The medic could not see the back of the child's throat because it was so swollen. Around 3 p.m. that day, there was a further collapse of child N with his oxygen levels falling to life-threatening levels and a further attempt to insert a breathing tube again found blood in his throat. Independent medical experts suggested the blood in child N's mouth was a result of the thrusting of a tube into the back of the child's throat to inflict injury. He was later transferred to a specialist children's hospital in Liverpool where he recovered quickly. On June 23rd and 24th, so on June 23rd and 24th, this instance happened on Letby's first shift back from a trip to Ibiza. It was reported that Letby, while she was on her trip, she had texted a colleague saying that she would be back with a bang. Child O, a perfect healthy baby, is due to be discharged home, but suddenly collapses on June 23rd. When the child initially became unwell, another nurse suggested to be moved to Nursery 1, where the sickest children were treated. But Letby disagreed, and the baby subsequently collapsed less than two hours later. He recovered, but he suffered two further collapses and died almost exactly three hours later. The lead consultant noted that the child should have responded better to resuscitation. X-rays on a post-mortem showed he had an abnormal amount of gas in his body, and he had liver damage that an independent pathologist would later rule had resulted from an impact injury, similar to what would have been seen in a car crash. Thirteen minutes after Child O's death, Let B was feeding his triplet brother, Baby P, who also was expected to be able to go home soon, but then he collapsed after his diaphragm was somehow shattered. Doctors attempted to recover him by preparing him to go to another hospital, and Letby then remarked, he's not leaving here alive, is he? The boy soon died. X-rays likewise showed an unexplicable amount of gas inside the baby. These deaths have been described as exceptional and the tipping point when the consultants realized that drastic actions needed to be taken. A consultant allowed the surviving triplet to be taken to a different hospital by medics who had turned up to take baby P, which had been expected to live. The consultant said she allowed this after her parents had begged for it, and she now felt let be was a mortal danger to the surviving triplet. Before the second triplet had died, Letby had texted a doctor saying she would be watching them both, triplet P and the surviving triplet, like a hawk, and said, I'm okay, just don't want to be here really, hoping I may get the new admissions. On June 24th, when child O and P unexpectedly died, it became the tipping point. 
Breary phones the duty executive Karen Reese on the evening of Friday, June 24, 2016, to say Letby has to be removed from the unit. Reese insists Letby is safe to work and is happy to take responsibility if anything happened to other babies when Letby was involved. Three weeks later, Letby is removed from duty and the suspicious collapses stop, but not before the final incident. On June 25th, 2016, the day after she allegedly killed child P, the neonatal nurse allegedly injected child Q with excess air and a clear fluid, possibly water or saline, into his stomach using a nasogastric tube. The baby was transferred to another hospital where he made a quick recovery. On July 3rd, 2018, Letby was arrested by police on suspicion of eight counts of murder and six counts of attempted murder following a year-long investigation. Letby's home at Chester was searched by police following her arrest. After Letby's arrest, the investigation was widened to include Liverpool Women's Hospital, which was another location Letby had worked at. Police started looking into Letby's entire career, including at the Liverpool Women's Hospital since her conviction. So Letby was bailed on July 6, 2018, as the police had continued their inquiries. Time had to be taken to review the unexpectedly large amount of document evidence that they had found in Letby's home. When I say they found a lot of evidence in her home, I mean that there was so much evidence in her room. It was phenomenal. In her diaries, they found what appeared to be a code of colored asterisks that marked significant events in the investigation, so these needed to be looked into further. I read that she had a post-it note saying that she was evil, she did this. I read that the, the notes that she had falsified that the doctors and nurses found on one of the babies, she kept actual truthful documents that she didn't falsify. Those were even found in her room. So she was rearrested on June 10th, 2019 in connection with eight murders and nine attempted murders of the babies. And then again on November 10th, 2020, she was bailed in 2019 as more time was needed to get evidence together to make sure it was as, as strong as possible before charges could be brought against her. They wanted to make sure that they had unreasonable doubt that she did it. There were thousands of exhibits in the investigation, 16,571 of which were not even used as evidence, and some of the items were themselves thousands of pages long. That's how much evidence and documentation they had. That's how much evidence the police found. 16,571 was not even used. The 2019 arrest and bailing had been made as by this time, three further cases of attempted murder had been identified which investigators needed to question Letby further on. And as Letby had been found to have written extensively about the case on her 2018 arrest, detectives wished to see whether she had written anything further in the year while she was under investigation. 
The key aspects of the investigation, which has been described as painstaking, were they were always asking themselves, who else could it be? If not her, what else could it be? So on November 11th, 2020, Letby was charged with eight counts of murder and 10 counts of attempted murder. She was denied bail and remanded in police custody. The Crown Prosecution Service were convinced to approve all of the charges against Letby after it reviewed the evidence the force collected against her. Letby denied all 22 charges against her, blaming the deaths on hospital hygiene and staffing levels. On March 13, 2020, Letby was placed on an interim suspension by the Nursing and Midwifery Council. I had read that this case was very lengthy, taking nine months because of all of the, the babies involved. It took nine months. I also read she showed no remorse. She wasn't crying. I read that the only time she really sobbed was when one of the doctors... They had him behind a sheet to testify against her. And when she heard his voice, it was suspected that she had some type of infatuation with him. And then she just started sobbing when she heard his voice. He, she actually got up and ran out of the courtroom. That's when she would start sobbing. That's when she started to show emotion while in court. But many people felt that she was remorseless of this stuff. I mean, even... Even if she would, even if she wasn't found guilty, I think she would have showed some sign of, some sign of grief. So on July 10th, 2023, after a nine month trial, the jury was sent to deliberate. Verdicts were returned by the jury on several days, starting on August 8th, but the final verdicts were returned on August 18th. Letby was found guilty of seven counts of murder of seven babies. She killed them by injecting them with air, overfeeding them, poisoning them with insulin, and assaulting them with medical tools. She is the most prolific serial killer of children in modern British history. Letby was also found guilty of seven counts of attempted murder of six infants. Letby was found not guilty on two counts of attempted murder, the jury was unable to reach verdicts on six further attempted murder charges. On August 21st, 2023, Let B was sentenced to life imprisonment with a whole life order, the most severe sentence possible under English law. She is the fourth woman in UK legal history to receive such a sentence. Goss said that Let B committed a cruel, calculated, and cynical campaign of murder, of child murder involving the smallest and most vulnerable of children. In closing, he stated, There was a deep malevolence bordering on sadism. You, let me, have no remorse. There are no mitigating factors. The offenses are of sufficient severity to require a whole life order. Let me opted not to attend the sentencing hearing, and as such, heard neither the various victim impact statements, which were read out, nor her sentence being passed. In response, Alex Chalk, Secretary of State for Justice, wrote that the government will look at options to change the law at the earliest opportunity to compel defendants to attend their sentencing. Letby's parents, who had been present throughout her whole trial, also did not attend her sentence hearing. After the trial, 
Lucy Letby was transferred to HMP Low Newton, which is a closed prison for women in County Durham. While every parent's statement is equally important, I will try to relate some of the important parts from each of their statements. Please know that I do value all of the parents' input and their voices deserve to be heard. Moreover, I feel that Let Be should be the one forced to listen to these statements, but that's my personal opinion. So the mother of baby A and baby B stated, Our minds are so traumatized. It won't let us remember the night you killed our child. After losing baby A, we were riddled with fear for his sister, baby B. We are so thankful that we had that fear for his sister. We are so thankful that we had that fear for her as it saved her life. There was always a member of our family at her side watching her. Little did we know, you were waiting for us to leave so you could attack. You thought you could enter our lives and turn it upside down, but you will never win. We hope you live a very long life and spend every day suffering for what you've done. The mother of baby C cried as she spoke of the impact Let Be had on her family. There is no sentence that will ever compare to the excruciating agony that we have suffered as a consequence of your actions. The mother of baby D says, I missed baby D so much. I was desperate to feel her, smell her, cuddle her. I was desperate to keep her safe. Since Baby D passed away, I live behind my own shadow. The mother of Baby E and F stated, Our worlds are shattered when we encountered evil disguised as a caring nurse. The father of Baby G stated, Every day I would sit there and pray. I would pray for God to save her. He did. He saved her. But the devil found her. Her condition affects every aspect of our lives. The mother of baby I says, She was our gorgeous little princess, and I couldn't even begin to explain the pain when we lost her. We struggle with trust. I won't leave my kid in the hospital. We will never give anyone that type of trust with our kids again. I don't think we will ever get over the fact that our daughter was tortured until she had no fight left in her. The mother of baby N stated, we believe baby N has lasting damage as a result of the injuries he sustained. The family still has a camera in their now seven-year-old's bedroom so they can check on him while he sleeps. We are extremely protective, she said. We wanted him to be homeschooled as we didn't want anybody else looking after him. Both parents for baby O and P made a statement. Their mother stated, going through the first with the surviving triplet is very hard. I started to blame myself. I thought I'd passed on an illness to all three of the boys. The boy's father spoke about watching baby O deteriorate and die. It was horrific to see. It is an image that I'll never forget. He sobbed throughout his statement and many in the court were in tears. He said he had suffered mental breakdowns and struggled with alcohol and suicidal feelings. The anger and the hatred I have towards Let Be will never go away, he said. It will continue to haunt us and will always have an impact on our lives. The true motives for why Lucy Letby allegedly carried out these actions are unknown. However, there are numerous speculations. 
One such speculation was that Letby attacked and killed babies in her care to gain the sympathy of a doctor who she had become infatuated with. It was alleged she wanted to make herself the center of his attention and focus. Letby and people in the public gallery could not see the married registrar because he had asked to give his evidence from behind a screen. His voice prompted her to break down in tears as she abruptly left her seat and walked towards the exit door of the dock. When the time came for her to enter the witness box, she said she loved the doctor as a trusted friend, but was not in love with him romantically. She denied claims by the prosecution that she was infatuated with the doctor, but other speculations include that she enjoyed playing God, received a thrill from seeing the grief and despair of parents, or found caring for less sick infants to be boring. During my research of this case, I had stumbled across many people who feel that Letby was innocent in these crimes. I even found an article about a woman in California looking into raising money for Letby's appeal, claiming that her trial was unjust because they only examined the days that Letby was at work. This case was difficult for me to cover. As a mother to a child who was born prematurely, I know that fear and desperation for your baby. Because the mother and baby need to be monitored and need time to heal, it is expected to be distanced from your baby as each area in the hospital is designated for their own specialties. But you have to trust that the nurses and physicians are able to take care of your newborn. A trust that is always pretty much given because they deal with these cases on a daily basis. So why wouldn't you trust these highly qualified individuals? Yet seeing this case sparked a lot of emotions for me. After a c-section and life-saving measures taken on me and my daughter, hearing this story was scary. Reading the parents' statements and heartache brought me to tears and made me hold my daughter tighter at night. I do not like to cover cases pertaining to infants and children. That's just me. I don't like, I usually don't cover these types of cases, but I, I made an exception for this one. I think the hospital is to blame, not the doctors who raised their suspicions to their, to the executives, but I think the executives failed these parents and those poor babies. Of course, the murderer is fully 100% to blame for taking these babies' lives, but if, if their superiors would have looked into the matter further instead of dismissing Dr. Breary so quickly on multiple occasions, then there could have been so many lives spared. I mean, some of these babies would still be alive, other ones wouldn't be suffering from disabilities, I mean, I understand that it is hard to grasp that someone would intentionally hurt babies, but unfortunately, this is the world we live in. I can only hope that these victims and their families can one day find peace. I'm not going to say to be whole again because there isn't a way for a parent to feel whole again after losing a child. So what are your thoughts on this case? Do you think Letby is guilty and her sentencing is just? Do you think these actions were caused by incompetency or malpractice? Or do you believe she's innocent? If you think she's innocent, tell me your thoughts. Tell me your thoughts in the comments. Thank you for listening to this episode. I know it was an incredibly sad story. If you have a case you, that you would like me to cover, please leave your request in the comments. And I also left a way to contact me with your requests in the show notes. Please stay safe, everyone, and I will see you for the next episode. Bye!